Welcome to the Remote Warfare Programme podcast. In this episode, we have a recording of a panel from the Conceptualising Remote Warfare Conference, which the Remote Warfare Programme held in collaboration with the University of Kent on the 28th of February and 1st of March. The conference pulled together a wide range of experts from the military, government, academia and civil society to discuss the past, present and future of remote warfare as well as the implications of this approach. We couldn't have organised the conference without the support of the Conflict Analysis User Centre at the University of Kent and the British International Studies Association. If you like what you hear at this podcast, you can hear more panels in our upcoming episodes and you can read more depth in more depth about the topics in our upcoming book released in early 2020. For now, enjoy the podcast. Up next, uh, we have a panel on security force assistance. We have three presentations. Up first is Martijn van der Form and Ivor Wittenberg from the Netherlands Defence Academy. Then we have Dan Mahanti from the Centre for Civilians in Conflict from Washington, D.C. And then Emily Knowles and Abigail Watson from the Oxford Research Group. Good afternoon, I'm uh, Martijn van der Vorm. I'm uh, uh, doing this presentation in conjunction with my colleague uh, Ivor Wilterburg. We are both uh, serving uh, army officers uh, within the Dutch uh, Armed Forces. And we are both uh, PhD candidates at the uh, Netherlands Defense Academy. Um, this presentation ties in uh, perfectly with the uh, previous uh, one. Um, our presentation of today reflects our early findings um, on how security force assistance um, fits within the prevailing concepts uh, within Western Armed Forces. In uh, modern Western military history, we have seen a recurring cycle of alternating emphasis on either conventional warfare or counterinsurgency. And with counterinsurgency, I mean large-scale uh, uh, interventions within, uh, within insurgencies. After the recent counterinsurgency era, with missions in Iraq and Afghanistan, Western Armed Forces are said to be in the process of recalibrating towards conventional warfare. Re uh, conventional warfare against peer competitors such as R Russia and China. Uh, some officers argue uh, that this reorientation is sorely needed as Western Armed Forces have lost the ability to engage in conventional warfare during the last two decades of counterinsurgency missions. Uh, moreover, due to the unsuccessful wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, large-scale counterinsurgency efforts are no longer deemed uh, politically uh, desirable or military feasible. Uh, however, when the uh, attention for um, or when the interest for counterinsurgency declines, this does not mean that um, that the foreign security problems are suddenly resolved as we see in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and many other countries. So to exert influence uh, in these conflicts, Western states uh, now often opt uh, to commit small detachments of troops in security force systems roles. Recently, though, the effectiveness of security force systems has been called into question. The footprint of these, um, these missions is often too small to positive positively influence uh, the conflict and does little to further a political solution to it. Moreover, the benefits of security force systems to the recipient local security forces have been challenged. From a military perspective then, 
for these missions to be successful, they should be coherent uh, with a uh, sound conceptual foundation of what they are to achieve and how we can uh, attain these objectives. Because if these missions are unsuccessful in mitigating the cur current conflicts, this increases the chance that such conflicts uh, will escalate, which in turn will lead to the perceived need by Western states uh, to intervene more directly, thereby prompting a new turn of cycle towards counterinsurgency again. This premise led us to the question to what extent is security force assistance compatible with the prevalent concepts and developments uh, pertaining to land operations. So in our research, uh, we have drawn uh, three case studies, the United States, Australia, and the Netherlands. And in this research, we have uh, analyzed the current doctrines by the, by the uh, armies uh, on land operations, and we contrast these uh, conceptual documents with uh, developments uh, and operation by the armies of these uh, three nations. So when we look at current doctrines uh, of the United States, the current doctrine on land operations uh, for the U.S. Army states that the U.S. Army wants to retain lessons from irregular conflict, a central compo component of this uh, doctrine, is that uh, the human dimension of uh, central component is the human dimension of war, and it calls for a thorough understanding of the operational environment and the human context in particular, including culture and history, as wars are fought among and between people. However, at the same time, it looks to a future where large-scale combat against peer threats is a, di is a distinct possibility. Uh, beyond the analysis of the operational environment, this doctrine uh, focuses on the employment of, co of combat power uh, with an emphasis on kinetic activities associated with conventional war. When we look at uh, Australia, in this um, introduction, the Australian Armed Doctrine states that war is above all a human activity and that success in combat requires, and I quote, harnessing all elements of national power in the application of joint effects to defeat an opposing force, unquote. Only, it is only in passing that the uh, cooperation with local security forces is mentioned. Additionally, the Australian Army acknowledges that operations will not be conducted on unsecured battlefields, but rather among the people. This makes civilian population both the objective as well as potential source of threats. Then the Netherlands, uh, according to the Dutch doctrine, land operations by default take place in a complex environment in which military forces have to cooperate with other armed forces, interagency partners, and NGOs. Again, the allied armed forces or local security forces only mentioned in passing. Furthermore, the human dimension is an important aspect uh, of the land domain. During operations, military forces should strive to understand the local population and build trust with it. <coughs> From the conceptual realm, we now look uh, at what the uh, armed forces are actually doing in these three countries. <coughs> Uh, in relation to operations and practical developments. The United States is conducting SFA missions uh, all over the world from Africa, Latin America, the Middle East, East Asia. And 
This, uh, this emphasis is reflected uh, in the organization of the US Army by the establishment of six dedicated security force assistance brigades. These brigades consist of 500 to 700 um, experienced officers and NCOs that are specially uh, selected and trained for conducting uh, uh, security force system missions. Besides this uh, task specialization enabled by the SFA brigades, another key uh, reason for them is that they free up the regular combat brigades for training uh, on, uh, for conventional warfare. Moreover, when the need arises, the SFA brigades can be augmented with personnel mater material to fight in the conventional wars. So they're sort of uh, dual-headed or uh, double, double role. When we look at Australia, uh, it also conducts several uh, SV missions in the Pacific, Afghanistan, and Iraq. And although it shows commitment to the lessons learned from uh, uh, previous uh, operations, the Australian Army yet has to publish an SV doctrine. This should be uh, forthcoming within the next year. Uh, however, uh, our research suggests that the preparation of uh, personnel for SFA missions in Australia is deemed is insufficient. And possibly this is a uh, result from a reorientation by the Australian Army towards conventional conflict by uh, way of training exercises and the acquisition of new material. Nellis then, a significant portion of the Dutch Armed Forces uh, that are currently conducted are, uh, are security force system missions, such as in Iraq, Afghanistan, and several uh, African countries. Despite this, uh, Dutch Army personnel is uh, deployed without any selection and without any uh, specific training. Furthermore, Dutch Army lacks any um, yeah, clear concept of what security force systems should be uh, or what it is. Our uh, research uh, suggests that these uh, conceptual and practical gaps within the Dutch uh, Ministry of Defense will not be addressed because it's not regarded as problematic. Uh, at the same time, the Dutch Army is uh, also reorientating uh, towards conventional conflict by way of training exercise and acquisition of new uh, material. Uh, it strives to increase its firepower on land and uh, enhancing its cyber capabilities. Uh, in conclusion, then, uh, still work in progress, um, but we see that in general there is an hiatus between concepts on land operations and the practice of security force systems in, the, uh, in these uh, three countries. Conceptual thinking on SFA by armies is mostly absent, and even in the United States where practical uh, steps are being taken with its creation of the SFA brigades, we see a hatching of bets towards conventional warfare. Nevertheless, <coughs> SFA missions are an expedient for, uh, for the armed forces th themselves. First of all, by deploying SFA missions, armed forces prove their worth to the political masses. And secondly, the SFA missions require uh, few personnel and, and other resources. And this uh, enables the reorientation re towards conventional uh, warfare by the rest of the armed forces. 
the lack of conceptual consensus and practical arrangements uh, on SAP, however, means that the effectiveness of these missions, as they are conducted by these countries, is undermined. By deploying small uh, detachments of troops to support local partners, we take the risk that we commit our armed forces to uh, open-ended conflicts. These deployments are too small to positively uh, resolve these conflicts, but can be sufficient to prolong them, or even draw on other parties that will support the opposing forces. This in itself can lead to an escalation of such conflicts, which can require additional troops and resources. Moreover, this increases the risk that the Western armed forces uh, that are present must take a more active and direct role in these conflicts, thereby perpetuating the cycle of conflict. Thank you for your attention. Great. Thanks. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay. Well, the bad news is I've got to present after lunch, and I can see that some of you are starting to waver in your attention, so uh, wake up. The good news is, though, this is being recorded for podcasts, which means that somewhere out there in the future, someone's dr drinking their coffee on their way to work, uh, and this is going to be really fresh to them. So <laughs> the other good news is that I have a face sort of built for podcasts, so, uh, so I'll take that. Um, my name is Dan Mahanti. I'm the uh, U.S. Program Director for the organization known as Center for Civilians in Conflict, uh, we're no notionally based in Washington, uh, and we have offices in New York, and I'm also here with our Europe director, Beatrice Godefroy, who's based out of Geneva. Um, we are funded by a shadowy network of global uh, philanthropists who have it in mind to overtake the state system by protecting civilians in conflict. So <laughs> more than happy to be transparent about uh, our motivations and our funding. Um, but I do have to offer a couple of caveats because of the frame of reference that I bring to the table. One is, of course, that this presentation is primarily uh, provided from, uh, from an American vantage point in American policy. Uh, so hopefully it will have some application to other contexts, uh, perhaps here in Europe. Um, and the other thing I'll just mention on a, kind of a more serious level is the there is a kind of tyranny of terminology that accompanies uh, acts of security cooperation. And depending on whom you're speaking with, at least in the US government, um, you might be you know, sort of using terms interchangeably to mean different things. So I'm going to use probably clumsily uh, the term security cooperation to more or less describe uh, what I'm talking about in terms of security assistance, uh, building partner capacity, and uh, other acts of, um, I guess, the whole buy with and through or partnered operations. And hopefully uh, it'll make some sense. Um, so I don't think I need to tell anybody in this room necessarily that, um, you know, if you've been following the news in the United States and following sort of congressional politics in any case, uh, a couple of weeks ago the U.S. House of Representatives uh, joined their Senate colleagues in passing a, a resolution that was, you know, more or less intended to constrain um, the United States government in its support for uh, Saudi Arabia and the Saudi-led coalition effort uh, in Yemen. And while the straw that broke the camel's back that actually finally got Senate Republicans, and I would argue, um, you know, Senate Democrats, and then the House side on board with this legislation uh, was likely the Jamal Khashoggi murder, which took place, which sort of stimulated uh, the final sort of um, action in the way of a resolution. But I don't think there's any question at all in my mind that concerns over civilian casualties and a number of high-profile civilian casualties incidents that had taken place uh, over the course of the conflict, um, not to mention the general association uh, of the United States with the humanitarian consequences uh, of the war, um, were creating a major political problem uh, for the U.S. government. 
And while the Saudi case is the one we talk about the most, maybe because it's the most recent, maybe because it's the most polarizing, um, it's not actually the only case in which civilian harm resulting from the actions uh, of a partner with whom the U.S. Uh, undertakes uh, security cooperation has caused significant friction uh, and for policymakers and actually placing them in sort of a suboptimal uh, policy position. Um, you could look, for example, to Nigeria, for example, where there was the, the bombing of uh, the refugee camp in Iran, uh, which led to a, a less known but equally, I think, um, serious um, legislative response in the form of uh, requirements of the Defense Department prior to moving forward with certain forms of security cooperation, and arguably um, there are others. So while I wouldn't stand here and say that this raised the, the policy cost of security cooperation to the point that the U.S. government is fundamentally reconsidering whether or not they want to undertake forms of security cooperation, uh, not in any way, shape, or form, in fact, um, I do think these cases and, and case studies like them uh, offer us some uh, instructive lessons about, uh, you know, sort of some of the fundamental miscalculations or at least the misguided assumptions about the effects of civilian harm on security cooperation uh, that together suggest that policymakers might want to approach the risk slightly differently, uh, and I would argue more seriously. So the first of these assumptions is that security cooperation activities um, that are undertaken in the name of these so-called core strategic interests will always be able to withstand the political scrutiny uh, that accompanies major humanitarian or human rights issues. Um, remarkably, this was the same faulty miscalculation or faulty calculation uh, that led to the first major congressional response uh, to U.S. policy in Latin America. And in fact, a lot of the legislation that remains on the books from the late 70s originated from congressional legislative response to U.S. policy in Latin America. The Section 502B of the Foreign Assistance Act, uh, which initially tied security assistance, in fact, all foreign aid, uh, to, to gross human rights violations was actually the first place in U.S. legislation where we enumerated international human rights principles. So it had a huge uh, effect in terms of uh, the political response. Now, that's a nice little trivia fact you can share with the bar later <laughs> uh, for people that weren't listening. Um, the second miscalculation is that the safeguards that are in place for risk management um, in, you know, a cup to name a few, uh, selective but retroactive sanction for specific crimes, uh, for example, through the Leahy Law, uh, and superficial attempts to build capacity through so-called human rights training uh, are sufficient to overcome structural or, structural or political deficits. This uh, sort of miscalculation, I think, also speaks to the problem of refracted interests and responsibilities across the entire U.S. government enterprise. Um, you know, you have to sort of uh, have some sympathy for the special operator, special forces, you know, on the ground who are asked to control a political risk through a tactical intervention. Um, it's really not a fair distribution of risk. Third, uh, the legal defensibility of conduct uh, or the U.S. role relative to that conduct will compensate for the indefensibility of the effects of that conduct. And we see this a lot in the Saudi conversation where um, it is argued that either through blindness or through others, some other form of, um, of legal defense, uh, we make the case that what we're doing is in all cases legal, um, and yet that has not really compensated for the effects of, uh, of the, um, the operation on the ground. Finally, um, and maybe this is one of the more important points that kind of, I think, pivots nicely from your presentation, um, you know, I think it's a miscalculation that the ends of partnership uh, or an alliance can be achieved in the midst of significant acts of negligence or misconduct, um, especially those that implicate the U.S. And on this point, I just want to clarify that I don't just mean circumstances in which human rights abuses um, undermine tactical goals like countering terrorism or countering insurgency. 
uh, because it's winning sort of insurgents over to the other side. I actually mean that I think um, there are cases when the United States undertakes a partnership for political means uh, or reasons um, to maintain alliances uh, or to balance or deter against uh, other major powers, in which case when you're introducing fragility into the partnership that results from humanitarian problems, um, you're actually ending up with a suboptimal situation relative to the original political role. So, for example, the U.S. alliance with Saudi Arabia right now has never been more strained than it currently is as a result of the actual conduct of the war uh, and U.S. support for it, which you could argue undermine the original intent of the partnership, which was intended to tighten the alliance uh, because of U.S. objectives in the region vis-a-vis -vis Iran. Um, so that's sort of another way of assessing um, sort of the outcomes of, of some of these problems. And on this point, I can't speak for the UK government or any other government, but I think in the US, for the US government, um, I can't really speak for them either, although they're not here, so I'll go ahead and do it. Um, <laughs> the US is particularly exposed to this kind of risk uh, because of the policy value it places on security cooperation as one of its primary forms of diplomacy, um, as a means of political influence, uh, and as a primary signal of commitment. We start to use security cooperation activities to proxy for a range of other political and economic uh, cooperation activities. Um, in fact, you're starting to see now with conversations around China that you know, AFRICOM is actually saying that they're going to undertake security cooperation to balance against Chinese economic activity, which is a rather unusual and I think unique feature of American security cooperation policy, nothing against AFRICOM. Um, a lot of great people there. Um, so in addition to those sort of, you know, I would say some of those miscalculations or things we've learned, I think there are also a couple of what I would call more positive signals uh, that make it worth taking a look at sort of risk assessments at this point. So one, um, again, I'm with an NGO, an advocacy NGO, and so I'm appropriately cynical of, uh, and skeptical of U.S. government intentions. But I also think um, there are some policymakers and some practitioners within government uh, who are at this moment in time genuinely interested uh, in reconsidering sort of the approach we take to managing the risk of civilian harm and security act, uh, cooperation activities. Um, I think there's a strong correspondence between what we would ask in terms of drawing greater attention to the risk of civilian harm and things that security cooperation reform advocates have been pushing for for a long time. In fact, in the presentation we got from our UK military colleagues, you see a number of these sort of developments that have come up over time in terms of providing capacity building that relates more to the capacity that's needed and not to the sort of shiny object that's desired by the partner. Um, there are some other sort of elements of security cooperation effectiveness that correlate or correspond nicely with, uh, with more attention to the risk assessment around civilian harm. So we at CIVIC um, have basically started to develop what I'll call a framework of analysis um, that blends six different sets of criteria, uh, political, legal, uh, oversight and accountability, operational uh, training, uh, and civil society um, to, desire to basically try to attempt um, the desired end state you would want to achieve in order to, to minimize risk. Um, you know, and then with, e with each of those variables, identify the particular risk that accompanies when you have a shortcoming or a deficit. Um, and then hopefully a set of questions you could ask of the partnership to determine sort of what your aggregate risk level is. The good news is we've, none of this is sort of engineered from whole cloth. We've actually taken a lot of the work of some of the organizations in this room, like Oxford Research Group, uh, works that legal organizations have done, uh, and the work of our own uh, people in the field to kind of compile what we think are a set of claims that will withstand a basic degree of scrutiny and where there could be some consensus around uh, the importance of variables in order to propose a framework that can also be disaggregated and reconstituted based on the nature of the activity or kind of activity 
and the particular circumstances in which it takes place so that you don't attempt kind of a one-size-fits-all, uh, but rather you've got something that's highly uh, customizable. Um, don't have time to go into each of the sets of criteria uh, today, uh, you know, because we, it would take me all day and my matrix is like 12 pages long. Um, but I'll be happy to share it with anybody, especially closer to the date that I think our papers actually do, which I thought was this week, um, which I was glad it was not. Um, but it might seem odd, I know, and I'm, I'm not an academic, so number one, I can't casually drop references to Foucault in this meeting, but also, um, <laughs> but also it's, it's probably a clumsy theory, uh, sort of methodology in that it, it tends to blend highly political or policy level um, sort of criteria with you know, highly tactical uh, level um, indicators. Um, and the reason we did that was because we got the sense that just as tactical can sort of affect the policy or political variables, so too can you know, sort of large issues at the policy level affect some of those tactical issues. Intelligence sharing, which is, you know, I think we talked about a little bit, it's operational and it's tactical, um, but it's also affected by political incentives uh, that I know some people in this room um, have written to, so we thought we should include um, all of those variables. So we don't want to suggest for a moment that, you know, we're trying to eliminate all the risks associated with, with conflict or that there aren't certain benefits that can be um, obtained through partnership uh, in service of the protection of civilians, um, but rather that risks take on very different meaning in circumstances where the partner in the U.S. have similar threat perceptions and are aligned on the proximate issues uh, in circumstances where they don't. So, oh, here, there's my, there are my criteria sets. Um, so the next steps uh, we're going to take are to validate some of the, the criteria and um, the sets in which they exist. Um, we're going to cross-reference cross um, our, our methods and our criteria with um, the different remote warfare activities. We actually thought that the, the matrix that uh, ORG came up with in one of their most recent reports might be a good match for that. Um, to test some of these questions and analytical, um, the analytical framework on a, on a case study, I actually went to Niger in November and I thought it fit nicely, although it was incomplete because I couldn't assess uh, European or French activities, just the American activities. And actually, um, I know I'm running short on time, but I'll just mention that we employed the framework in Niger, and I came away with an entirely different set of conclusions um, in terms of the risk of U.S. partnership activities in Niger than I had started with. I started with much more of a focus on um, the nature of you know, uh, remote piloted aircraft drones uh, in Agadez and came away with the sense that it's actually the, the lack of force presence and the risk of, of the potential of abuses on in, in some of the periphery of Niger um, that were really the protection uh, um, uh, priority in that country, I think even for the U.S. government. So hopefully um, what would follow from that would be to develop a set of actual prescriptions instead of just saying, okay, governments and civil society, here are the questions you can ask and here's the risks, you, here are the risks you identify. Take that next step to work, uh, you know, hopefully in uh, collaboration or at least uh, consultation with, with those in government doing the work to say, okay, what would you actually do with this information? How would you design differently? How would you implement differently? And then the challenge, of course, is many of these partnerships are actually you know, running in train. And so mid midstream adaptations can be uh, quite difficult. So I think I probably went over time, um, but I'll leave it at that. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you.
you. Now I feel kind of bad that we haven't put our matrix on a slide so that we could uh, we could compare them. But it's absolutely wonderful to have this sort of comparison and to, to be working across different cases, I think, is going to be a really productive way of going forwards. Um, for those of you that don't know us already, this is a very late stage in the day for me to be introducing us, so I can only apologise for that. Um, but I'm Emily, and this is my rather marvellous colleague, Abby, who has been organising um, a lot of this conference. Uh, we're here from the Oxford Research Group and the Remote Warfare Programme, um, which was kind of set up in 2014 when it became clear that, you know, post big Iraq, big Afghanistan, that military engagement was going to change somehow. Uh, we just weren't sure exactly what direction it was going to go in at that time. So we've been looking at different trends in military engagement ever since. And this idea of um, light footprint, building partner capacity, relying on local forces on the front lines over large deployments of NATO troops has really sort of captured what we've seen from uh, contemporary military deployments. So that's been one of the things that we've been looking at. Um, but without further ado, I'm going to pass over to Abby to start to run through some of the research we've been doing on these specific questions on whether we've got a strategic blind spot over remote warfare in British policy. Okay, so to add another definition of remote <laughs> warfare, which I think complements a lot that have been here already today, we take remote warfare to mean, at its most basic, the countering of threats at a distance without the deployment of large numbers of a country's own troops. Instead, we look at the way um, you, countries like the UK and the US engage abroad by working by, with and through local and regional forces who do the bulk of frontline fighting, with countries like the UK playing a largely supporting role, providing intelligence, air support and training to those groups on the front line. So in March 2017, we asked whether this approach was working. We, at, we did this through a large number of expert roundtables and drew on field research in Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as with UK personnel rotating out of Somalia. We went into a lot of details. These are three quite big reports, and we're not even going to touch the surface of even a fraction of what we covered, but we have loads, and I don't want to take them back on the train, so if you want to grab one on the way out, please do. <laughs> They're great. Um, but what we will talk about today is that one of the things that ran through a lot, a lot of the reports, and it's run through our, our work since, is that we're seeing a disconnect between the rhetoric of strategy documents and public statements, and the reality of op UK operations happening on the ground. We notice this in two distinct ways, which we'll go into in more detail now. The first is when counter-terrorism sucks national attention away from the much-called-for whole-of-government approach. And the second is when national objectives stated in strategies do not reflect the resources and strategic guidance that soldiers are receiving on the ground. So, to the first of these, in our report on the political implications of remote warfare, no such thing as a quick fix, um, we noticed that the UK has not stopped aiming high when it comes to foreign policy objectives. And it's recognised the need that the, the whole of government needs to be mobilised to achieve regional stability in the places it engages abroad. We saw this, for example, in the 2011 Building Stability Overseas Strategy, which stated that building partner capacity in countries can help those countries to provide their own security more autonomously in the future, but said that this only works if support to build the capacity of security forces is matched with efforts to build accountable, legitimate 
and, and accountability and legitimacy and respect for human rights. For example, through set, strengthening civilian oversight of military forces and ensuring the proper functioning of parliaments, the media and civil society. This same recognition is clearly front and centre of the fusion doctrine. The 2018 National Security Review promised that this new approach would ensure that in defending our national security, we make better use of all our national capabilities. But the problem is that if most military activity, or at least some military activity in contemporary campaigns, including the training and equipping of local forces, is focused on counter-terrorism, short-term objectives are likely to take priority. This incentivizes British decision makers to pick local partners on their, their ability to tackle groups like ISIS, rather than based on a careful assessment of the groups most likely to provide an effective, accountable and legitimate force that will improve the long-term prospects for peace and stability in the countries that the UK is intervening. This was, this was captured in a 2018 piece in Foreign Affairs where it said the deeper dilemma with the by, with and through approach is that it chooses military partners for a relationship that often evolves into a political one. And in doing so, it inverts Clausewitz's famous dictum that war is the continuation of politics by other means by subordinating politics to choices on the battlefield. This heightens the risk that decisions are made throughout the, the campaign, particularly when it comes to choosing partners and empowering and equipping local groups, that leave a negative legacy from the perspective of stability and reform efforts. Oh, it's going well. Um, so we see examples of this in Iraq, Syria and Libya. In each case, the UK has exp had expressed and worked towards trying to achieve a long-term long stability. In, the UK, in Iraq, the UK invested politically and economically in security sector reform. In Syria, the UK was one of the first to respond to the humanitarian crisis and committed 271 million in its 2018-19 budget. In Libya, it worked with countries like Italy to find a way to strengthen the government of national accord. However, in each of these cases, the more immediate aim of tackling ISIS took precedent, and the UK and its allies worked with the most militarily able groups on the ground rather than those most likely to deliver lasting peace and stability. So in Iraq, the UK worked with the Kurdish Peshmerga. In Syria, it worked with the Syrian Democratic Forces, who are led by the Kurdish YPG. And in Libya, the UK and its allies worked with a number of groups from the Libyan city of Misrata. The impact of this has been to exacerbate fracture, fracturing societies and further weaken fragile defence and security sectors. As Alison Pargater said of Libya, there are long-term consequences of working with particular groups. Doing so alters the balance of power on the ground, to the potentially to the detriment of prospects for peace. This also appears to be true of Iraq and Syria. In Syria, in, in, in predominantly Arab areas now controlled by the SDF, we see tensions between Kurdish and Arab groups. And internationally, Western support of a Kurdish-dominated force has caused tensions between the West and Turkey. And then 
Similarly, in Iraq, Western support to the Kurdish Peshmerga has increased their capability vis-à-vis the Iraqi state, prompting the independence referendum and the ensuing violence which removed any goodwill forged in the fight against ISIS. So as we've already sort of alluded to in, in previous presentations, I think especially the one um, by, by Matt and Brian, this is all about kind of balancing risk. And it might seem kind of rude to pick on a, an anti-ISIS campaign example as one of perhaps the examples of um, a great kind of proximate risk that um, Western forces had to face as an example of how you can mobilise like fusion doctrine. It's clear that the threat, uh, <clears throat> the threat posed by a group like ISIS um, was quite overwhelming, was quite dramatic, and required a response to be mobilised quite quickly. But what we find really interesting is that it's not this, that this lack of a joined-up strategic approach only affects those sorts of examples, like the, the ones at perhaps the most um, difficult end of the spectrum when it comes to defining political goals, getting military responses um, in coordination with them. But actually, since we published those reports, we also went out and did some field research um, across Kenya and Mali and looking at the theatre also in Nigeria, where you might perhaps argue that the the, the threat of the terrorist groups operating in those spaces um, was not at the same level of groups like ISIS. And one of the things that really came out of that research is that there's still this kind of lack of um, unification of those like broad strategic aims um, that maps really clearly onto tactical activity that's happening on the ground. So we've got some examples up here um, of some of our interviews with, with soldiers who said that, you know, we're being asked to, to project global influence, um, to build uh, the capacity of our partners, but you really need kind of a fairly high level of resourcing and strategic guidance in order to be able to do that. Um, and they were talking really of a gap between those, like the high level NSC aspirations and the actual activities that they were being asked to deliver. So while you might expect in these kind of more of a, a low threat environment, an easier ability for the government to kind of go, well, these are our broad overarching aims in Africa. This means that if our priorities are these countries, they're the ones that we're going to put the most resources, the most people in. Um, we had people basically describing the UK approach as sort of throwing a few men here, a, th a few men there, and kind of spreading bets in terms of making sure that we were visible, uh, making sure that we were there to send a signal to partners, but not necessarily having the sense that the actual activities that soldiers are delivering on the ground was particularly important on a strategic level, which was really interesting because, you know, you had people then describing how they felt like they were operating in a bit of a political vacuum or recounting examples of where they'd been given strategic priorities from a new national security um, review, for example, but when they tried to sort of rejig the activities that they were delivering on the ground to, to match those better, they were told to just sort of carry on doing what they had been doing. And I think this really kind of, it leads to an interesting scenario where you've got people on the ground who don't really believe that the training that they're delivering to local partners is capable of or delivering the sort of long-term change that you look at when you look at the big strategic rationale for being there in the first place, right? I mean, we've talked to the building stability overseas strategy, the international defence engagement strategy goes into that in more depth as well, that the reason for engaging with these partners in the first place <coughs> is to build these local actors who in the future will be more capable of providing security in their countries and then hopefully in their regions. So it, it's essential that the sort of activities that we're delivering at least start to build towards those goals, whereas what we seem to get at the moment are priorities that don't match up with resources necessarily, and a system that isn't really drawing on that local level expertise as well. 
So the impact that we've got up here is that you, you kind of get soldiers undertaking short-term training courses as something that can be achieved um, within the restrictions that they have in terms of the permissions that they've been given, in terms of the resources they've been given, um, but with an understanding that these aren't really going to address the problems in the countries that they're being asked to engage in. And that was something that came across uh, the interviews in, in Mali, Kenya, and with the uh, people we spoke to who've been deployed in and out of Nigeria and Somalia. So just to wrap up really quickly, because I know that we're <coughs> running desperately out of time, <laughs> as per usual. We didn't just try and game the system by doubling our time by having two presenters. We will try and stick Maybe to it. Maybe next time. <laughs> it's, it's a flawless strategy. Um, but where we see this, the, the kind of problems um, then are that it, it seems that there's a real strategic recognition that putting long-term political aims in play somehow when you're designing the sort of support that you give to partners is essential. But in those really high priority, kind of high threat environments, what you get instead is counterterrorism kind of outstripping the speed at which other actors are coming up with strategies. Um, so you get sort of the military able to set conditions on the ground that we may then end up finding ourselves in the unenviable position in some of the countries that Abby was talking about, about having supported groups or outcomes that stand against our long-term interests. But even in areas where we don't have that kind of pressing counter-terrorism concern, where we're working with local partners to counter groups, um, you've kind of got this gap between the broad-level strategic concerns and the tactical-level activity. They don't seem to be feeding into each other. There's not any obvious mechanism for the learning that's done by troops that are deployed out for long periods of time to feed back into the strategies that then circulate back down, um, which seems to be a bit of a loss. If we're, if we're going to be deploying troops out with these aims, uh, making sure that we're using them um, in the most effective way is, is, is quite essential, especially with this, you know, we've had, we've had many iterations of the fusion doctrine. I know it's a, it's a new one that came out through the National Security Capabilities Review. The government likes to reiterate the fact that it obviously makes sense for different arms of government to work well together, but there is at least a new momentum now. So it's really important that with this, um, government departments themselves are looking through now and, and working out how they're actually going to implement this and give this another go. And also in light of the Chilcot report into, um, into UK operations in Iraq, which really kind of hammered home this importance of really being clear about strategic outcomes, making sure that they're given the appropriate level of external scrutiny debate. Um, so that's our kind of projection over the next couple of years, is that with this sort of renewed enthusiasm so far for the idea of working together in the British government um, that it will be really important to get these lessons through so that we can start to see actual progress on this.